I'm your host, Natasha T. Miller, and this is The Science of Grief, a podcast about the stories, science, and solutions around grief and mental health. As always, a reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for professional help. If you have a mental health concern and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. If you are in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255. In today's episode, we're talking about denial and isolation and the importance of acknowledging grief and seeking out therapy. Plus, we'll hear about an entirely new challenge for people experiencing grief, virtual funerals. Later on, I'll talk with Damika Houston about denial and acknowledgement, ways that young adults can access therapy, and how to support someone who is grieving. But first, our producer, Kaylin Higgins, spoke with Joshua Watkins. Joshua shared the story of losing several loved ones in a very close period of time during COVID-19, and some of the things that were important to his healing process. I've lost four people that I loved and care about, There are all people that, whether it was due to the pandemic or due to life circumstances, I hadn't been around uh, as closely as I'd wanted to. But the first was an old family friend who basically helped raise me when I was a kid. His name, I called him John. And then I found out uh, a couple of years ago that his name was actually Jovan. So he had a heart attack uh, while driving a truck and passed away suddenly. And then... Later on in the year, one of my childhood, like a good childhood friend of mine, drowned. And then right after he drowned, my great uncle passed from cancer. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And so there, my friend's viewing was the day before my uncle's funeral. And I couldn't go physically to either of those. Like I could have, if I had had the, the fortitude at the time. But my friend, it was limited to family, so we had to go to his viewing, and then we couldn't go to the funeral afterwards. Uh, And then uh, my uncle, I watched his funeral virtually, Mm -hmm. and then time passed from there. And then earlier this year, a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a bit, he took his own life. And I was closer to his brother but we were still we were still very much friends. We used to spend a lot of time together when I was overhanging with his brother. So my question, you said that you attended a virtual funeral for your childhood friend. Is that correct? No, I went to his I went to his viewing in person. I went, I did the child, I did the virtual funeral for my uncle and for my friend who who passed earlier this year. Can you can you tell me if you don't mind how how did it feel to be in a virtual funeral? super weird it was once you've been to funeral if you've been to a funeral in person uh i know not everybody has like death is nothing new to me uh but up until my grandfather passed i refused to go to funerals that was just something i didn't do but if you've been to a funeral you know that there's like while there's so much grief and pain and angst in the air you kind of all go through it together that's what a funeral does. It gives you a moment of community where you're around people who are, who are experiencing the same loss that you've, that you've experienced. And even though it is tremendously sad, 
you still have people to, to wrap their arms around you, to wrap your arms around, and you can, you can carry on together. A virtual funeral just feels like you're watching something happen, and the connectedness you feel in a room just isn't there. So it's, it's very isolating. So just paint a picture. It's not a call. It's like a live stream. Oh, a live stream. Okay. So it was a small amount of people. It was very, very small amount of people. I don't think more than 10 people were allowed to be there. If there was, like, I think 20 would have been the cap for a funeral. Yeah. And so how do I picture this? So say I'm looking at you right now, right? Right. And where you are, like looking at you, I can see anyone who's going up to speak. Mm-hmm. So like anyone giving a speech or singing a song or preaching a sermon, I can see you pretty clearly right. from where you're at. And then the coffin will be somewhere behind you or off to the side of you. Again, at least for my uncles, it was different for, for my friends. But again, like you just can't see anyone's face aside from that person and then seeing the coffin and it's this, yeah, it's a weird detachment in the live stream. Because, again, there's no interaction aside from the visual interaction you're having alone. Wow. You know, I can't even imagine. That just had to make it feel even more, like you said, distant, detached, and just... Mm-hmm. So it's just like you looking in. Yeah, it's literally you looking in. That's it. Uh, have you ever been on a YouTube live stream before? Yes. All right, so you know how you can, like, interact in the comments and, like, talk to people? Mm-hmm. You can't do that on the funeral ones. I imagine there's, like, there's reasons for that. I can imagine that, like, if someone did something like uh, how there were Zoom crashers before, mm-hmm. how, like, people would hop into public Zooms and just, like, spend it with terrible things. Mm-hmm. I imagine funerals weren't trying to have that happen. And so it's not an interactive platform. But it's so disengaging for the people who love the person that can't be there. Was your was your wife able to attend this funeral? Were you able to have like some type of um, touch, should I say, like as far as hugs mm. and stuff? I hear that. Yes and no. Sorry to like go back to it, but that's the other thing about COVID funerals too is that you if you have people immediately around you that aren't participating with you, it's a doubly isolating experience because you're having your own moment of grief in a very intimate place, your home, with people you should be very intimate with, i.e. my wife, i.e. my roommates, who are, who are family friends. The aloneness of it hits just that much harder because if they don't know them, like they're not grieving with you, they're grieving that you're grieving, or they're sad that you're grieving, but they're not in it with you. And so it's, it's so like my wife will come in and be like, are you okay? And I'd be like, no. And she'd like give me a hug or rub my arm. And it was heartwarming to know that like she cared, but it was, it increased the isolation factor of like my, my person's gone and I can't even turn to you to be like, hey, you know what I'm, like you may have lost someone, but you don't know what I'm going through with this person. It was definitely strange. So when you talk about your your friend that took his life, was his funeral or viewing, was that the moment when you realized that you that you needed help as far as coping mechanisms? I don't even think I got there on my own, if I'm being very honest. Mm-hmm. I think it took my wife and I having some hard conversations about where we were at relationally. 
because of my grief to be like, oh, okay, I, yeah, I need help. I knew I was in a bad place when my friend Jordan died. It's still hard to talk about, but not in like a, I don't want to talk about it way. It's hard to talk about because like you still... Piecing it together? Yeah, because when, it's, when someone kills themselves mm-hmm. and your reaction is, or the feeling that you have, not your reaction, the feeling that you have is wanting to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. There is so much like, and it makes me sick. It makes me feel physically ill saying that because like you feel so much guilt for wanting to do something that you know has caused harm. Mm-hmm. And you feel guilt for feeling that way as a response to their pain. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so it was it was a very tough time to even try and think about help because what you're trying to tell yourself that entire time is, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm okay. No, I can manage. I'm not going to do this. I am not going to do this. And that's that's the hard part. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so yeah, I just I think being in a place where I realized it was affecting my loved ones and the way I was I was with my family, mm-hmm. uh, that was what pushed me to, to realize I needed help more than anything. Were you um, emotionally shutting off? Absolutely. I was tuned out. I didn't even know that things were wrong with other people. Mm-hmm. That's how checked out I was. I was very much in my head. And that's one of my, my things I'm working on in therapy is my response to trauma is to shut down. Yeah, I've known, um, I've been in a similar predicament, not necessarily the same as your story, but losing multiple people at the same time or they're back to back to back. And I can understand how, you know, at first it seems like you you get a grip on it until you realize like later on down the line, you are like slowly like losing yourself. As far as coping and after you experienced these loss, what were some things you did to cope? Uh, I think uh, I found, I found usually escapism is my, my way. Um, I really dug into this past year, uh, like my city's music scene. Like I only listened to Toronto artists intentionally. Uh, and so part of that was just like, what's something I can love and support here? Uh, because that's how I try to care for myself and the, like the artists around me because most of my peers are artists. Um, like, let me, let me find ways to invest in, in you and care about you and share your work. Um, because you, you never know. Like, you never know when somebody's, when somebody's time is. And then the rest was escapism. I lost. A, I watched a lot of TV. I mean, we all did during the pandemic. I feel like that was right. <laughs> that was that was something we had to do just for our sanity. Um, I really dug into anime, though. Uh, anime has always been my way out. So the next question I do want to ask you is regarding your recovery process. As of right now, I think you told me earlier that everything is getting a lot better. Right. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I think a lot of it has to do um, with 
conversation. Mm-hmm. That was a big starting point. Just me and my wife having a couple of really serious conversations about where I was at mm-hmm. um, and where my mental health was and where her mental health was because of where I was at. Um, making sure I got on the list for therapy. Uh, and then finally having the opportunity to speak to my therapist for the first time since uh, winter uh, and like winter of last year. And so the those two things prompted by like just burying myself in a couple tasks. I'm, I'm working full time on top of being an artist full time, uh, on top of being a dad and a husband and uh, a roommate and you know, just trying to work my way back into doing small things for my health. Um, you can't tell now because my hair is all grown out and I need to see another a barber again. But uh, just even like something as small as I went and got like, I'm snitching on myself, but whatever. Uh, I, I got a haircut, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was at a point in my depression where it was just me not taking care of myself. Um, so like my mood could be up, but that was at the expense of me like, you know, the morning I might have, I might not have brushed my teeth till midday. Uh, I might not have taken a shower for one or two days. Like that was where I was at. And for a while I was managing those things, but I just wasn't taking care of my hair. Um, and you know how it is. Blackness, your hair is very like, it's very intertwined. Yeah. Uh, I just wasn't, mm-hmm. yeah, I wasn't taking care of my hair. And then I got to the point where I'm like, yo, my wave game used to be sharp. And that made me feel good about myself. So like, let me, start brushing my hair and like really taking care of it. Um, spending some time like actively using my, getting my wave cream back popping and like using my brush and doing that regularly. Um, and that was, that sounds like a little thing, but it was such a big shift in how I look at myself and look at my own health. Um, it changed a lot for me. So between therapy, uh, outward conversations with my immediate circle, mm-hmm. um, my wife, especially, and a couple friends, um, and then just finding a way to take care of myself. Uh, I remember like I started working out in January, um, and was like getting on road to being like physically healthy. Uh, and then that fell off too. And so my repercussion was like, all right, I have a bunch of medium sized t-shirts. I need to get rid of all these medium sized t-shirts and I need to buy myself some extra large (laughs) t-shirts and like really just like remind myself that I don't need to feel bad about where my body's at. I just need to make accommodations for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what recovery has been like. A lot of accepting where I'm at, um, doing small things to, to care for myself and then scheduling more therapy. Uh, I'm I'm blessed that my wife has benefits. And so uh, with her job, we're able to to book some stuff. And we also understand that it's just necessary. Yeah. Uh, that if we had to pay for it out of pocket, we would pay for it out of pocket because we need it. So. I'm glad. That makes me happy. I'm glad because I know how it feels to to be in a dark place and then to try to like push through. Mm-hmm. And then just the fact that you know, you're getting better. You see the progress and it's just small things. Even like these small things are making big changes. Yeah. Um, with that being said, actually, can you take us back to where you've had your first therapy session? Word, therapy. Um, How was it? it? What happened? <laughs> it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, mm-hmm. 
and like some of it I won't talk about because it's more it was more yeah. to do with my marriage and making sure that was gravy and healing mm-hmm. um, but when it came to to addressing just the the loss um, and the depression and the suicidal ideation I was experiencing at the time um, my therapist said something that that it it's a permanent lesson I think and it changed the way I look at therapy um, but it also changed the way I look at conversation um, about struggle and it's that therapy is supposed to be for upkeep and maintenance not for crisis so you're not supposed to get into a crisis situation and then go to therapy it's no, this is how you upkeep your mental health. This is the fine tuning. This is your visit to the mechanic to make sure that all the things are oiled and greased. It's your oil change. It's not your emergency for like your engine falling out. That's not what therapy is. Wow. Yeah. And it was a gem. It, it, it really opened my eyes to how much I wasn't taking care of myself um, and how much I had neglected that part of my understanding of my mental health. It's like, what do you, what do we do to ensure that our, our mental health is on the upkeep and not being managed crisis by crisis by crisis? Um, so it was good. I think it was the first time that I had said out loud, everybody I had lost all at once. Uh, it was the first time I had said out loud. Um, and I mean, like all in one sitting and what they meant to me and like, the depth of that. It was the first time um, that I acknowledged that I rushed through the grief in the way that I did, um, especially especially Eli. Um, bless you. Thank you. Um, yeah, especially Eli, uh, and then and then Jordan as well. Um, the so it's been or it was just this really beautiful moment of release for me, I think more than anything, to say their names, to say where I knew them from and what they meant to me, going deep into the, like, the, the memories of it. And like, I didn't take long, it didn't take long to explain who they were to me because I knew exactly who they were. Um, and, yeah, it, it felt more like freedom than anything. When you say freedom, I picture like just a weight or like something just like either a weight being lifted off your shoulders or like just a wave. Just yeah, a weight is a weight is definitely it. it felt like taking. Do you watch anime? Because I don't want to make this reference if you don't watch anime. Um. I'm not like a heavy anime fan, but I'm familiar with some animes. Uh, Dragon Ball Z or Naruto? Oh, yeah, definitely. Cool. All right. So, you know when Rock Lee takes off the weights? <gasps> yeah. He drops some of this. And he's like, this full oh, power. This yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's what it feels like. It's, it's like your body, um, especially on your chest. It just feels like you're able to move again. Like it doesn't feel like those things are kind of sitting like as as weight like like wet clothes on you that are heavy and you can't take off. It's like no 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 I've named it 
I've said it. <sighs> Free. The things I tried to do to cope prior to therapy were completely barrel. It was just trying to barrel through the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of that is just, you know, what you're taught about manhood and masculinity and the, the not allowing yourself to feel pain nonsense that we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a generally sensitive guy. Like I'm very aware of my emotions. And so to know that I was sabotaging myself in that way mm-hmm. um, and being aware that I wasn't allowing my grief to hold space. Um, and how's the other thing she said, my therapist, fantastic woman. Uh, she said, um, you need to find a way to grieve and live at the same time. Um, and that was, that was the other thing I hadn't been doing. So I hadn't been taking care of myself and doing regular maintenance on my mind and on my mental health. And I also felt like, uh, and part of it's survivor's guilt and part of it's just um, a lack of understanding of what it means. Uh, but I, I truly thought that like when you grieve, your whole life is supposed to stop. Um, and like you might have to, you might do the things you have to do because you have to do them. But I truly didn't stop and think. You can do these both. You're allowed to be sad. And you're allowed to live simultaneously. You're allowed to have moments of joy while you're experiencing grief because these two things, like the events aren't separated. They're, they're your life. It's your life. And your life is your intermingling existence with all other peoples that you encounter, all the people you choose to attach yourself to. And you kind of move through your life And, you know, if something bad happens in one aspect of your life, it doesn't mean your whole life is bad. Um, You know, and so like the, the joys, I was like the joy of fatherhood. I'm allowed to experience that knowing that my friend took his life before he could become a father. Uh, I am allowed to, you know, like I'm allowed to go. I'm going to name the place. I don't even say the place out loud. Like I haven't been to the Scarborough Scarborough Bluff since my friend Eli died because that's where he died. He drowned out there. Um, But I'm allowed to go. I'm allowed to go and be at that beach and have a good time and not think about his death. And if I do think about his death while I'm there, I'm still allowed to laugh and smile and make jokes with the people I'm there with. That's, those aren't, those aren't forbidden things. Um, and so learning to, to grieve and to, and to live simultaneously and learning that uh, therapy is about maintenance, not about uh, managing crisis. Those are kind of the big two takeaways from, from therapy. So my last question to you is coming out that storm, what would, what would be something you would say to those that, probably either going through a similar situation or just coping with loss in this pandemic in general? If I could say something to someone coming out of a period of great loss um, and probably living in isolation or intense isolation, uh, which I guess most of us have been over the course of the last year and some, um, you got to make space to just air it out. 
And so, like, having the the space to even check in with you and, like, be honest with yourself about where you're at. Like, be honest about your function. Because it's one thing to be, like, to be, to be sad uh, and grieving and, you know, take a day off or two of, like, cooking. You know what I'm saying? But it's another thing to look around your room and see it's in complete disarray. It's... It's another thing to see, like, something you care about happening and feeling genuinely detached and disinterested. So, like, check on your state of being just as constantly as you can and be honest about it. Like, are you in a good spot right now? Uh, And if you're not, then, you know, the next thing to do is ask for help. And whether that's ask a professional or ask the people around you, like, start asking. As you heard in Kaylin's conversation with Joshua, he was experiencing some new aspects of grief that I want to talk about a little bit more. Denial, isolation, acknowledgement, and the benefits of seeking therapy. To do that, I called up Demika Houston, a therapist in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who is passionate about the mental health of young adults and adolescents. As, as a therapist, um, and I'll kind of kick it off with this because a lot of these young adults and adolescents that that'll be tuning in, uh, you know, they're figuring out, you know, how to how to break those 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 bonds of going to therapy for the first time. And I know, you know, Joshua talked about the importance of that, but also how scary it could be. And is there is there any advice that you would give to young people who are considering it for the first time but are just scared of it? Yeah. Um Really is I think one of the things we the challenges with seeking help and in, in especially when it comes to loss and grief is not where knowing where to go um and who to go to, especially in our community. We tend to not have that support from our family and friends, or sometimes we believe we don't have that support because of the stigma we have with mental health. And one is just kind of finding community. And the hardest part is seeking that out and who we can talk to. And sometimes even just talking to maybe a coworker or a colleague or even just like research. And I think the best thing about right now in the day and age of technology is that there's a Facebook group for everything. (laughs) And even there, you can find a lot of support in that way to help guide you in seeking help. Speaking of, uh, of therapy, Joshua talked about therapy as maintenance and upkeep and not just maintenance, you know, not just maintenance. Like, what's the importance of you not going to therapy when you are in a crisis, but going to therapy when a crisis begins and continuing that therapy, even as you feel like you're not in the beginning stages of that crisis? Absolutely. So one of the things that I kind of explain to my clients is when we look at our own health, so we we neglect our mental health a lot. Um, we think about going to a doctor every year, right, for a physical and our checkup, um, seeing a dentist regularly for our teeth health. Um, but we don't really think about, oh, I need to see a mental health professional for my mental health regularly. We usually wait until the crisis. But like anything, we have to continue to have that co- continuous support and maintenance of our mental health, even when we're not in crisis, because it helps remind us of the tools and skills that we need when we do come up against the crisis or um, some obstacles in our life. Uh, it's 
a thing to help continuously improve our health overall. So we don't want to neglect our mental health, just like we don't want to neglect our physical health. Something else that, that, that Joshua talked about, and I think that maybe this was something a lot of people or enough people experienced during the pandemic was those consecutive losses. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about, you know, young people, they might have experienced, let's say, one lost their mother. And mm-hmm. the consecutive loss wasn't I lost my mother and my grandmother and my brother, but maybe I lost my mother. Maybe I lost my opportunity to go to prom. Maybe mm-hmm. I lost my opportunity to go to my first year of college. You know, just these consecutive back-to-back losses. Um, mm-hmm. For somebody experiencing that kind of compounding grief, are there different ways uh, and strategies of coping? Oh, man. I'm glad you brought that up too, because we we always think about loss as maybe a death or something like that, but we don't think about those losses with opportunities and jobs and careers and education, right? Uh, On top of maybe losing a a loved one and loss is different for each person and how they um, will grieve and how they will process it. Um, And even each situation is different as well um, and how they see um, that loss. Um, I do believe that anytime you are dealing with grief, you allow yourself to grieve. Um, sometimes, um, and it kind of what I was hearing from Joshua's um, story is that at points in time, he was in denial of how he was, how that loss impacted him. And then it wasn't until things started to get really, really big and it started to crumble and he knew that he needed help, right? He was on the edge. Um, And I think that's where we're at sometimes. Like we always try to use things around us to distract us like work and friends and outings and gatherings. And then when we get to that place, kind of like currently with COVID isolation, we start to realize that all of that stuff that we try to ignore isn't it's actually hurting us and it starts to overpower us and it becomes harder to get out of it. And I think that first acknowledging the loss, when you have loss, no matter what the loss is, acknowledge that, hey, I I lost something here. You know, this is how it impacts me. This is how I'm feeling. You know, this is what's, what's going on with me, just internally doing that work. And then how can I find support? Who can I talk to about this loss? Who can I go to that's going to be understanding and supportive? Yeah. Um, what can we do to confront our emotions when we're grieving the loss of a loved one? So one thing we always do is, I always say, take off the mask. Because we, we even put a mask on for ourselves. Um, and that's take off the mask. If sometimes with loss, we feel angry and we don't want to feel angry and we get upset ourselves because we're angry and that's okay. Right. There's a reason why our emotions are telling us that there's something there, right? Whether it's anger, sadness, whether it's anxiety, whatever it is, our body is naturally telling us something's wrong and we need to deal with this so we can be better in the future. And so just acknowledging and being okay with that emotion if I feel anger towards this, I'm angry. I'm angry because X, Y, and Z. I'm angry because I lost an opportunity which I thought was going to be really big for me. I'm I'm sad or I'm disappointed because I thought this was going to be more than what this was, right? Acknowledging, labeling that emotion. And that's hard for us to do because sometimes we don't know what we're feeling is 
how do I identify what I'm feeling? What am I feeling? Question yourself. Am I feeling angry or am I feeling disappointment? Or am I feeling sadness? And then once you label that, you can confront it. So, you know, there's, Joshua talked about um, escapism. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, escapism can be healthy and it can also be unhealthy. So I, I you know, he re, he rediscovered his childhood passion of anime. He also talked about how he just started to listen to all of the different artists in his city specifically, and that was his escape, and that was something that was was healthy. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the effects of escaping or the effects of escapism being healthy and being unhealthy? Yeah. So for. One of the things that I try to do with our clients is because we all use things to escape from reality, right? Whether it's reading a book, a TV show, um, maybe going exercise or music, um, and it can be healthy, right? If it's something that is pouring in positivity is one of the things I tell my clients. If you're escaping to something that's going to create positivity for allow you to get strength to move forward, right? To heal in the process, that's good. But when we escape to darker places, things that aren't always positive, things that may make us a little bit more darker and depressed, um, that's where we kind of have that problem when we try to escape from things. Because a lot of times escape is really avoidance, right? Sometimes we use it just to avoid what we're feeling, what we're doing. Um, And so it's really at the same time, identifying why we're escaping. What is this doing for me? How am am I benefiting from this? Or is this causing me to continue on in the hurt or the the pain that I'm feeling right now based off the loss? Um, So it's really just exploring what are you escaping to? Why are you escaping there? And what's the benefit for it? Mm. You know, uh, we we discussed Joshua not being able to go to those funerals. Like so many Mm -hmm. people weren't able to go to those funerals. do you what? What are the possible mental health benefits of being physically present in a funeral versus you not being able to be there? So uh, the big thing is being around people who are in the same boat as you that can relate to your loss, as well as when we're at funerals and in person, we hug and we touch, and touch and feeling and those are really good healing tools, right? We are very. Um, communal, we want to feel supported. And there's something about being in an environment physically with people, the energy that you get from it, the healing power that you get from actually being physically present with individual, then watching it um, virtually. And because you watch it virtually, there's a disconnect. It's almost desensitizing the thing that is going on, the loss, right? It's almost like watching it on, on a movie screen. Like Joshua talked about, it kind of didn't feel real. What is it that young adults do you believe that they can do to navigate and and process their own grief or just to deal with their own mental health? Because again, we discussed a lot of people for, for whatever reasons don't have access to to therapy. But what are some other forms of therapy? Yeah, so some some things you can do personally is depending on what the loss is, you can also do letters. Um, to the person that maybe you weren't able to say goodbye to in person, you can write letters. Um, you can do um, a little kind of going away ceremony on your own. Um, you can also do different like types of journaling and meditations. Um, it's part, 
loss is personal. So it's really more of like, what do you, what would it take for you to feel like you have said goodbye or feel relief from this loss? Absolutely. So um, as someone, and uh, this is my, my last question, as someone who, again, deals with young adults and adolescents, um, what, what would just be, you know, your, you know, what do you tell your clients when they come in and they're, again, trying to navigate their mental health? Everything you're feeling is real and it's okay. It's okay to feel the way you're feeling. It's okay to think the way you're thinking. And it's okay just to be. As we heard from Damika and Joshua early on, acknowledgement is an important part of the grieving process. While Joshua had difficulty talking about his loss at first, he later found ways to open himself up to new forms of creativity that were beneficial and therapeutic for him. Here is a poem Joshua wrote that is featured in an audiobook, Power in Poetry, Moods That Move. You can find it on Audible. It's called Casket and Cradle, Glutton and Gardener, On Grief and Loss. Love begins by latching, attaching affection and sentiment to that which we sense connection with. Nurtured well, love spreads through continued contact and observation, knowledge flourishes into familiarity, then tendrils down into memory. And once love is deep-rooted, it commences fusion, commits to our innermost essence, even bonding to the breath, and it remains until death. The casket of fondness is the cradle of grief, the rendering of a new self rent from a living love. I wander streets I used to play on, Phantoms shimmering like projections, flickering between rewind and fast forward, the playground, where my dad gave me underdogs and the brown brick buildings behind it were the last places we dwelt together before the divorce. If my family had a burial ground, that would be the place. But gentrification chose violence, cleared the corners currently covered in condos, the dust and debris from demolition has long since become a distant memory. Now my thoughts are the only place my heartbreak has left to stay. A decade has passed. I still mourn the blast of TNT when I pass by, and I mourn for the hood I left hidden under the cusp of prosperity still. This grief pales in comparison to the grave. When someone I care for dies, I forget where I am. My spirit attempts to find the piece of it I attached to the departed and ricochets off the veil between possessed vessels and the void. It returns to me, stricken, a haunted, directionless question. Where are they? Where? Who are we? To be clear, there is no making this pretty. No way to make any part of loss comparable to the tearing of quilts or the burning of bridges. No, I will not beautify bullet holes or the way water weight has waterlogged one too many of my friends. Cancer has made cadavers of my relatives and cardiac arrest turned my homie with dreams bigger than his body into emotionless corpse. I cannot beautify the reaper, cannot capture its features and pretend them gorgeous. Death is a glutton. A scavenger with polished hose for fingernails, spades for hands and feet, cleavers for teeth and a throat that cannot close in life. 
Life is a gardener mad with grief that it cannot keep its crops alive. Hoping remembrance is enough to fertilize those that manage to survive. So we write in the wake of sorrow, sit in our funeral clothes and write about the tomorrows we will not share with our beloved. We do not beautify loss. We enshrine life, give every memory an afterglow and use the shooting pain in our pulse to sharpen our senses, illuminating the lessons shrouded in tears and the emptiness filling us. We chronicle our mistakes. Shed light on the ways we make light of our sadness. Discount that weight as we wait for closure that cannot come until we wade through the muck of misery. We etch recklessness and abandon into stories of survivor's guilt. Take our lives for granted while wishing the ones we love could return to us. And yes, I said love. We write about how we love them. How we know they love us from beyond. How even severed from the land of the living, the ones we grieve still shape us. When someone I care for dies, I am lost. Because the peace of my spirit attached to the dead is scrambling back from the great beyond, through the cosmos and down to my unprepared body. When I remember where and who I am, Having traversed this life without lost love as a guide, it returns to me like a vision, a way forward, a path for my love to persevere. I hope you found this episode helpful. If you want to hear more, subscribe. And if you know someone who might find this episode beneficial, please share it with them. A reminder. This podcast is not a substitute for professional help. If you have a mental health concern and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. Help is available. If you are in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255. This episode was produced by me, Natasha T. Miller, Shanmin Sultana, Kaylin Higgins, our executive producer, David Lyons, and our editor, David Weinberg. Theme music by Jordan Davis with sound design and additional music by Sam Bobian. With additional support from Patrick Vaughn, Holly Ann Stewart, Aaron Appleby, Maida Stangy, and Antoine Scott.